Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. We are in the midst of an affordable housing crisis. 500,000 Americans are homeless. Half of all Americans say that the lack of affordable housing in their community is a major problem. And during the pandemic, both of those issues have gotten worse. The solution to this growing crisis seems like it should be pretty simple. We just need to build more affordable homes, right? Well, not exactly. And that's because of another crisis on our hands, climate change. If we simply build more homes the way we do now, we would, in the words of one expert, ruin the planet. See, construction and building operations are leading contributors to climate change, responsible for nearly 40% of annual emissions. It is a vicious cycle. Build more homes, ruin the planet. Build fewer homes, deepen the housing crisis. But what if we could break that cycle? Many believe we can do it, but we'll need to work new age tech into the old school construction industry. And we'll need to prioritize a livable future over short-term profits. In short, we'll need to take a bit of risk. I'm Caroline modaresi Tirani, and this is American Metamorphosis. The type of big, bold ideas that will better the housing industry aren't only found on construction sites. To see them up close, we can look across industries and in unexpected corners, like inside a Michelin star kitchen. I'm Daniel Holm, and uh, I own a restaurant in New York City called 11 Madison Park. Can I call you Daniel or do I have to call you chef? Call me Daniel. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Tell me about your restaurant, Daniel. It's a really, really special place. Um, I've been there almost 20 years. And um, over the years, um, we've just kept changing and changing and changing and, um, you know, got more and more notoriety. What was the cuisine of 11 Madison Park and, and who were the clientele? The cuisine was very, I would say, traditional fine dining cuisine. You know, the obvious thing of butter poached lobster, of crispy skin duck, of, you know, quite traditional uh, in that sense. It took me a long time to to find myself as a chef, to find my voice. At, at some point, it isn't about being the best chef anymore. It's more about what's your story and what's your expression. Daniel's culinary expression would evolve to include honey lavender duck, miniature tins of caviar benedict with potato, leek, ham and hollandaise, and flaming baked Alaskas. The multi-course $300 plus experience earned 11 Madison Park three Michelin stars and the title of best in the world. You'd think that Daniel was living on cloud nine, but the reality was a bit more complicated. And it was 2017 and um, when we reached that point of being on the mountaintop, 
it felt extremely uh, disorienting and also empty. How was that, though? Because you've achieved, you know, you just mentioned that for 20 years you've been seeking these accolades, right? This is, And then all of a sudden you're there and it's so empty. And did you have a crisis? I definitely had a crisis because for 20 years I woke up in the morning with this one very goal to be the best. And then when you become the best and then the next day you wake up and you're like, what's next? And, and I, I got asked that all the time. But I really didn't know what was next. And so then the pandemic happened and it was devastating. We had a last service where the restaurant was completely packed. The next day the city was shut down and we didn't reopen the doors for 18 months. The pandemic brought 11 Madison Park to the brink of permanent closure. Daniel called in bankruptcy lawyers and all 250 members of his team waited to know if they'd return to their old jobs. Daniel feared for the future of his business, but the pandemic did help him connect with New York City and its people in a brand new way. During the time of um, the pandemic, I turned 11 Madison Park into a community kitchen, and we cooked close to a million meals for food-insecure New Yorkers. I was in New York the entire pandemic. I got to know a New York that I never knew, and I felt guilty of it. I felt that how could I have lived here for so long and not trying to help to solve this problem? Because the clientele that you were cooking for and your world essentially was the world of the 1%. That's right. And my, you know, I was focused on these accolades and I guess on the 1%. And during the pandemic, I just realized how meaningful this work was. And so I reconnected with food in a very powerful way. And I realized that food is this beautiful language that can make change. And so then I started to think about, okay, if we reopen, what would that look like if I put my creative hat back on? Daniel's new culinary language would be inspired by his local and community-oriented cooking and by worldwide concern about the sustainability of our food system. I was invited by the UN to speak at COP26. That's the United Nations annual climate change conference, by the way. And uh, I spent the whole week there and uh, I went to a lot of different discussions and talks. It was depressing. It was depressing to hear where we are as a world, the disasters, how everything is changing so, so, so quickly. And I heard people talk about different energy sources, building windmills, the car industry changing. But I walked away from it feeling, but what can we do today? The way we eat, we can change today. Daniel understood that he could drive that change, not only for him, but for his patrons. So in the spring of 2021, as 11 Madison Park reopened, he announced the daring decision to make his menu entirely plant-based. The way we have been eating does not work anymore. This wasn't my idea. This is something that's so obvious when you start paying attention. And so if we're moving to a place where we will have to eat more plants, we might as well make it as delicious, as magical, as beautiful as we can. 
I felt like, well, I'm celebrated as this, you know, innovative chef at the forefront of dining. And if I'm really that, I am the expert here. I should point things out. I'm like, hey, guys, this old idea isn't right anymore. We need to rethink what we eat and what luxury is and what these things do to us and to the planet. The timing was bold. When 11 Madison Park transitioned to an all-plant-based menu, all the other three-star Michelin restaurants in America served meat or fish. Daniel was risking his business and his reputation, all in the name of sustainability, at a time when the pandemic had already made his restaurant vulnerable. Even for an award-winning chef, that's no easy call. You know, I was really nervous, especially because of my closest people didn't really believe in it, didn't really see eye to eye in it. So I felt quite alone and uh, I couldn't sleep the night before uh, the reservations went live. And I was like, oh my God, what happens if no one calls? It could have been career ending. It could have closed the restaurant. Still, Daniel was encouraged by the notion that he could influence an entire industry. I thought about the car industry and I thought about Toyota Prius and Tesla. And Toyota Prius was way before the Tesla, the first hybrid car, incredibly innovative, um, unbelievable, but it didn't move the entire car industry. It was a very niche kind of thing, similar to a vegan restaurant. A vegan restaurant is kind of a niche thing for people who are more conscious about the planet. But that's not the majority. And so then Tesla understood that if they just make a great car and it doesn't matter what it's powered with, then that would change things. And in fact, it has. Probably in 20 years, there will be no more gasoline cars. So do you feel like that's what 11 Madison Park is? Are you the Tesla of this analogy? I think things do trickle down. And I think when you can create something really luxurious that is just delicious and beautiful and magical, and it doesn't matter if it's meat or no meat, then I think you're really changing the conversation. At first I thought this was limiting. Everyone thought it was limiting. We're limiting ourselves from, from the animals, from the fish, while in fact, it has been so expensive. In fact, it was limiting before to cook a piece of meat. It's not that creative. There's only a few ways you can do that. Plant-based is really about expanding. I'm Caroline Modoresi-Tirani, and you're listening to American Metamorphosis. a podcast partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the branded content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. In our first two seasons, we looked at disruptions to fundamental pillars of our society, from presidential transitions to the way that COVID reshaped our approach to life, work, and the world around us. This third season, we're looking at disruption as a force for good, a tool to address the many crises we seem to be facing today, from the lack of sustainability in our food and housing systems to rising inflation. 
Solving each one requires innovative thinking and coordinated action. And perhaps more than anything, it will require us to transform our perspective and understanding of risk. And as we expand our ideas of what sustainability tastes like, we're also thinking about what it's made of, how it feels and what we can build with it. The construction industry and local governments are starting to do the same. I think that policymakers, progressive mayors, city planners get FOMO. We built the first 3D printed community in history in Mexico. And then governments around the world were knocking on our door to say, let's bring it to our countries or cities. My name is Julieta Morade, and I'm currently a venture capitalist for Home Team Ventures. We invest in early stage construction technology. The number one reason we're looking at construction technology is because we believe it's a prerequisite to adequate housing. The industry of construction is actually one of the largest market sectors in the world, but the least digitized. There's not enough innovation in the space, and that results in things like housing being too expensive. So we believe some of the root causes stem from the fact that housing is so expensive to build that governments can't build enough per year. There's not enough supply to look at the immense demand. And when I say demand, I mean there's 1.6 billion people who are homeless today. And the UN has projected pre-COVID that that would reach 3 billion by 2030. So in our decade, that would duplicate. But now with the pandemic, of course, those numbers are gonna be larger. The challenge is not only providing housing to those who need it, but doing it sustainably. We can't just build more homes the old way. So if we just look at which industries are most responsible for carbon emissions, construction is the most responsible one. Now I could talk about when I was an engineer and we're in meeting rooms talking about this new high rise that we're building in downtown San Francisco. And we're not talking about what kind of concrete we're using, which by the way, cement is responsible for 8% of CO2 emissions globally, we don't even question should we use a different material because the regulatory process in the US is so slow to adopt new technologies. And so it's just, it's so hard. It's so interesting because it feels like there are all these bottlenecks that people face like you when you are trying to be innovative. There seems to be such a high barrier to entry for innovation. Why is that? In the construction sector specifically, there's a huge barrier to adoption because of the culture. I think it stems always on more of a social aspect. The culture being on construction sites, it's very much this mindset of we've always done it this way. And not to deteriorate that there's a ton of amazing contractors and developers and subs that want to be very innovative and they're excited about new technology. But it's a safety risk. When you have been building a building the same way for over 100 years and you know it works, you know if there's an earthquake, it's going to still stand. It's really much that mindset of, we've always done it this way and it works, why would I change it? Julieta is one of a growing number of voices calling for a systemic change in how we build homes. And that means we have to reimagine what housing looks like and what it's made of. A prime example, the world's first 3D printed community built in Tabasco, Mexico. 3D printing is not the silver bullet solution to housing at all. It's going to take an immense amount of different technologies that we implement in different situations. But when we're working in a rural area like rural Mexico, bringing in a 3D printer that could build a house in 12 hours, that's where we start seeing, you know, new opportunities for speed. So what did these houses look like, feel like, smell like? Like, you know, people will hear about 3D printed anything. I think there's still a little bit of a sort of skepticism and an eyebrow raise. 
That's like an architect question dream right there. The way that I explained to my grandmother is a toothpaste tube. So as you're squeezing your toothpaste tube, you have your toothpaste coming out. It's very viscous. So imagine these toothpaste tubes getting printed one layer at a time horizontally. And so when you look at the wall, it looks like a bunch of these tubes, one stacked on top of the other. And can you print specific housing that will be more resilient against climate change pressures? Yeah. So for the 3D printing design, we used U.S. building codes, the regulations in the U.S. to prove that this 3D printer could work anywhere because the U.S. regulations and European regulations are some of the most strict in the world. So when you design for any kind of housing structure, whether it's a house or a building, you're designing for a specific location. So if I'm designing for San Francisco or Mexico City, it's a high seismic zone, meaning I need to make sure that my walls and my structure are going to withstand a magnitude nine earthquake if that happens. So with a 3D printer, the very interesting thing is we are designing the home the same way we would design in San Francisco. So we are not saying this home is for homeless people in Mexico. Let's just design it to to look nice. We're going to design it to be resilient and durable the same way we would do in the US. You mentioned that the concrete was responsible 8% of all emissions. Can you modify the actual material? Is that different to traditional concrete? Is that lessening a carbon footprint? So the 3D printer itself, there's two secret sauces. There's the, the robotics of it. So the actual printer, the hardware, and then the actual material science. Because concrete, what concrete is, it's you have cement, you have water, and then you have aggregate. Aggregate is usually like rocks and sand, whatever is locally sourced. And there's the secret sauce for the cement aspect for it to be able to cure at a different rate and be that viscosity that you need, which will be different wherever you print, depending on temperature and humidity. I think that we sort of tend to dwell in that more big, dreamy kind of space. But what you're describing actually is that there is a lot of incremental tech innovation that can be happening all the way down to the actual physical like textures and and materials we use to build the homes to help solve this affordable housing crisis. Is that something that you feel like is really understood by, you know, American politicians and people who actually have skin in the game when it comes to trying to solve this crisis? Our number one barrier in the construction industry is adoption. So if I come to you and I'm like, you've been building the same way for a hundred years, let me bring a 3D printer on your site. That's, that's way too quick for you. If I come in and say, let's look at the lowest hanging fruit along the construction value chain. So again, looking at you're buying your land, you're doing design permitting, building, post-construction. Let's look at the lowest hanging fruit and let's actually solve for those problems. You're more likely to start adopting if it's technologies that are software solutions, for example, that are just an app that you have on your phone versus bringing in this robotics on site. It's so interesting because it's sort of in the context of risk. What you're basically having to tell people is not selling them on the, the big risks. Exactly. The 3D printing. You're having to help chart change by these sort of almost like microdosing risk. My, it's, it's literally you have to start off. This is so funny. You have to start off people with microdosing to bring in innovation. First is you need to know their incentives. So our target audience here is always going to be developers and governments for policy, but mainly developers when it comes to new adoption. So what is their incentive? Number one, we live in a capitalist society. They want to make more margins. So how do you kind of infuse that into convincing them to build more housing? The second is risk. Like you said, it's they need to have micro dosing of risks to actually get to that end point in the next five to 10 years. 
but the climate and housing crises are urgent, and five to ten years is too late. With global climate change, our coasts are no longer going to be there in a very short amount of time. I mean, Miami flooding in the next 10 years is going to look very, very different, just the coastline itself. So massive displacements and new migration patterns. And what does that look like for housing? All of a sudden, we're going to have even less supply. So I know I keep saying 3D printing is not a silver bullet solution, and it's not. But for situations like that, where we need to just build quicker, these technologies are no longer a I need to microdose on solutions because I have a huge barrier to adoption. It's we do this or we don't have housing. Building a more sustainable housing system is not just about bricks and mortar and toothpaste tubes. It's also about financing scalable projects. Lately, that's become more common as the risks of ignoring climate change have become more obvious. Financial institutions have recognized now that the effects of climate change pose immaterial risks to their own finances. And so they're also really stepping up their efforts to address climate-related risks. My name is Veronica Chow, and I'm a partner with the Boston Consulting Group. I work with our financial institutions practice, working with banks, investors, private equity funds around the world as they navigate both the opportunities and the challenges that environmental and social trends present to them. What are the sustainable projects that banks and institutions, financial institutions are interested in? What do they look like on the ground? Yeah, so you have discounted mortgages, uh, home equity lines of credit, HELOCs with lower rates, and those, those all exist. I think where it gets more interesting, though, as we move off of one home at a time and thinking more systematically. So in countries where there's still a lot of housing stock being built, for example, where I live in Canada, there's a lot of new homes being built. Uh, banks are working with those developers to say, why don't we build an entire subdivision that is energy efficient? And I will provide you with financing to make those homes more efficient. Same thing with the parts of the bank that lend to the large commercial property owners. All of this investment is not only driving cleaner development, it's also working to narrow the racial equity gap, which is apparent in homelessness, home renting and home ownership. Renters who are Black pay $273 more per year for energy than renters who are white. And this amount actually increases if you look at homeowners. Homeowners who are Black pay $400 a year more in energy costs alone than for homeowners who are white. And this, these numbers, of course, control for the city, the income, the, the size of the house, et cetera. And so this disparity in terms of the energy burden, it is what sits at the intersection of affordable housing and energy efficient housing in that paradoxically, it's the people who can least afford it who are paying the most in energy bills. And, and the story even gets worse because the utility bills have unfortunately played an outsized role in triggering greater uh, stress and burdens on a family. So for example, it's the late fees that stack up on a utility bill that leads to a much larger amount that than a family could otherwise afford that often triggers then accessing a payday lender, thus starting a cycle of debt, right? Um, and in some very tragic circumstances, the lack of utility in 
uh, a home has been used as grounds for families losing custody of their children. And so figuring out ways to work through the utility companies to upgrade those homes, provide energy efficiency, it's, it can have just real in, incredible impacts, not just for the climate, but for these families. And you mentioned, you know, losing custody of children, but it also is a trigger for homelessness. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, utility bills are one of the few recurring bills that can actually then trigger an actual loss in credit score and, and get you kicked out in ways that other bills might not rack up. And those risks are just awful and societally shameful, essentially, that we're allowing this to happen. And we're allowing this to happen with such frequency. Well, I think the good news is, is that there's more and more interest now in, in actually taking action. Somewhat careful action, that is. Large financial groups don't quite seem ready to take the plunge with venture investors like Julieta. And their overall reticent to putting their dollars into cutting-edge technologies deemed high-risk and high-reward. When are we going to see, you think, the firms on the higher end of the food chain investing in 3D printing companies or embracing more daring projects than just retrofitting? The large institutionals, they themselves are, they need to manage their funds with an overall, you know, risk return threshold. So it's, I don't see a world in which they, they put it all in venture because just by definition, that's that's high risk. But again, if you look at the commitments that they have made through bodies like the Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance, one of those commitments is to find ways to much more intentionally invest in those solutions. Um, I think another thing that could be very helpful to unlock that larger amount of capital at scale, to your point, of into 3D printers, et cetera, is there are other pools of money out there that don't need to make the same high rates of return, but might value a climate impact much more. And those pools are sometimes with the government public sector funds that are put up that say, hey, here's some lower return seeking money. Why don't we use this to take some of the risk off of an investment so that a market seeking investor like a pension fund can come in. So those those funds are really starting to... to um, to take off. And then, of course, you see private philanthropists where it's effectively, you know, um, some, some higher risk tolerant money that's being put up in such a way that some of these uh, more market seeking investors can then come on top, create an investment fund at a much larger scale and put all of that to work towards these companies. Why do you think that there seems to be this sort of lag around being more innovative when it comes to investing in green housing and more sustainable housing? Because it feels like we're there with cars, but we're not quite there with housing societally. Why is that? I think the everyday economics have not fully kicked in yet. Right. But I think that I think as energy costs increase so that those who are paying utility bills see that more, it will become more of a of a salient point. And so for example, coming back to my own home purchase, it's not yet embedded into the standard features and qualifications of a home. You know, if you look at a real estate listing, you'll understand if there's a granite countertop or a two-car garage or whatever it is until we get to the point where there's also systematic rating of here's the actual estimated cost from a utilities perspective and here's the energy efficiency standard of this home. I think that's when you'll really start to see this market taking off. The last question for you, Veronica, what is the opportunity right now and what's the opportunity cost of 
not double downing in investing in sustainable projects and continuing to push the envelope. On a smaller basis where the banks do see risks of not innovating uh, and scaling solutions in the near term is there are a number of so-called challenger banks. These are these digital banks that don't have any branches that are actually trying to recruit customers on the basis of a green and clean offer. There is this like competition for the conscientious client segment, which the banks recognize are growing. The challenge with doing nothing is you'll miss out on this increasingly large segment that does want to bank in a way that is aligned with their values. And then zooming out at a more macro level, let's say, is when they run the numbers about the portfolios to which they are exposed, um, be it housing, uh, be it commercial real estate, and just projecting out 20 to 30 years and just looking at how many of these homes are actually resilient enough, how many of these homes are actually going to um, be able to retain their value if they're too expensive to heat or cool, right? These are the the real questions uh, on banks' minds and hence why we're seeing much more action in the space. Whether it's holistic changes geared towards sustainable housing or sustainable fine dining, it's clear that to meet the urgent needs of our planet and serve the world's growing population, it'll require us being open to novel ideas. And that means raiding the pantry of innovation and adding a pinch of fearlessness. Because the thing about risk is that it's not all gloomy downside. There's amazing promise in it too. When chef Daniel Hume reopened his restaurant, he learned that lesson right away. Luckily, we sold out in about three minutes and we had like 15,000 people on the waiting list. And actually we've never been busier. Were the same people walking in the restaurant or did you end up with a different clientele because of this big decision? Our clientele has completely changed. Our clientele is much younger, is much more diverse, and um, much more conscious of their actions. Do you feel like your plant-based menu is going to be able to attain the kind of accolades that you've been attaining for you know most of your career? You know, these are things that are obviously out of my control. I want to point things out and say, hey, the way we have done things are maybe not accurate anymore. I think that's probably true for a lot of different industries. Do I want to continue to be recognized as one of the great restaurants in the world? Yes. But for me today, um, it is more important to do the right thing than to reach these stars. Last question for you. Not everybody will get to eat at 11 Madison Park, but can you just describe the smells, the sounds, the sights? I don't know. It also depends a little bit on the season. Like we're just coming out of the winter season where a lot of things are braced and long cooking processes. And then in the springtime, it's more about the freshness of these uh, ingredients that are picked. One of my favorite things is like when you have these sugar snap peas, that you obviously can eat whole with their shell, but when you peel them and you just use the inside, they kind of puff in your mouth and are so extremely sweet. And uh, that season only lasts about six weeks. And that's one of my favorite things uh, during the spring that I'm looking forward to. Better than caviar? Much better than caviar.
listening to American Metamorphosis. Join us next week as we go from building a more sustainable future to preparing our health for one. Thank you.